0: Well, if you have a copy of the Bible, whether digital or hard copy, uh, please turn with me to the book of Acts. As a church family, we've been working through the book of Acts together. We find ourselves in the 24th chapter today, chapter 24. We're just going to pick up right where we left off last week. Recently, I heard of a man who moved to a new town. And while moving to this town, he saw an opportunity to get a new start on life. He said, while I move here, I'm going to make sure that I get right with God, and I'm going to attend a Bible-preaching church. And in God's providence, there was a pastor from a Bible-preaching church that was right there when he moved in, helped him to move in. And he said to him, we would love to have you join us at church We meet Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. He said, I would love to come to your church someday, but I'm going to wait until my life is all straightened out. A few weeks passed, and the two ran into one another at the local grocery store. The pastor said, oh, I hope that you are getting acclimated to our town. We are looking forward to the day in which you will join us in church. He said, I will come to church one day, but I'm going to wait till my life gets straightened out. Months pass, and now this man finds himself in the hospital. The pastor hears of this, and he goes up and visits, and he prays with him. He encourages him, and he says, I'm looking forward to the day when, when you will get out of this hospital, and you will be able to join us at our church on Sunday morning. He said, I will. I will come to your church one day. But I'm waiting for my life to get all straightened out. A year passed, and that man died. And his family was looking for a church that would host the funeral, looking for a pastor that would officiate that funeral. And they they remembered the man talking to this pastor. So they reached out to the pastor and says, would you officiate and would your church host this funeral? They said, we would be honored to be a blessing to your family by doing that. And so there it was that day, the casket was out in front of the congregation, and there this deceased man lay. And the people within that church said, Preacher, do you think he made his peace with God? Do you think he had his sins forgiven? Do you think he was right with God? Do you think that he is in heaven today? And the pastor said, I don't know about that. But as he looked over the body with rigor mortis having set in, he said, I can guarantee you one thing, he was a man of his word. He had said he would come to church when his life was all straightened out. It has been said that atheism has claimed thousands of lives, but procrastination has claimed tens of thousands of lives. And so we can have a desire to say, you know, I'm not against the Bible, I'm not against Jesus, I'm not against God. But the timing for me is not right at this particular moment. In our passage of Scripture today, we are going to see a man that heard the gospel message. And he was a procrastinator. He wasn't necessarily against it. He was like, let me me get to a time when my life is straightened out. Well, let's turn here now to Acts chapter 24. Let me give you a brief summary of where we have been. We've been tracking with a man named Paul as he has courageously gone out and proclaimed how we can have our sins forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has gone throughout the known world proclaiming this message. And in God's grace, churches have been planted And he has gathered the leaders of these churches, and they've taken up an offering. And he has wanted to go back to the mother church in Jerusalem, where it all began in the second chapter of Acts. And he has wanted to present them with an offering. And on his journey, there have been people who cared for Paul, and they said to him, don't go, because if you go, you're going to be arrested. But the Spirit of God was leading him, and he said, I'm going anyway. Last week in our message, we find out that he did get arrested. And there was an assassination plot on his life. That the chief of police there in Jerusalem said, We need to get him out of here. And so, with 470 soldiers, they surrounded him and they took him 65 miles from Jerusalem to a city called Caesarea, where he would await a trial. And so, today in chapter 24, we get to read of that trial. I don't know about you, but I live in a family where my wife and all my boys love these action movies. I, I like more lawyer movies. And so I love this passage today as we, we examine this case that is being brought before Paul. Let's look here at Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So five days has passed. Paul has been moved to Caesarea with these 470 soldiers that protected him. And now his case is being brought before a judge. And the Jews, this Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin, From Jerusalem, many of them have made the trek 65 miles to get there for this trial. In fact, we see Ananias, the high priest, the corrupt one, is present. And they have hired a lawyer by the name of Tertullius. We don't know much about him other than his name is a Roman name. And we read here in verse 2, And when he had been summoned... Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, so here's the opening argument in the second part of verse 2. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight and most excellent reforms, Felix, we are being, being made for this nation, and every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. It's in verses 2 and 3 where the lawyer is identifying who the judge is. It's a man named Felix, and Felix is the governor. Now, history tells us that Felix ruled from the year 52 to 59 AD. He is the first Roman citizen who was a slave that actually became a governor. And one historian, a Roman, said of him he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of king with the spirit of a slave. And while this lawyer is offering words of flattery to him in his opening statement, they are not true. In fact, one incident illustrates this. Uh, Felix was married to a woman named Drusilla. She was known for her beauty. And she was married to a man, but that did not stop Felix from pursuing her. He was drawn with his lust towards her. And he sought a plot to get her to divorce that man so that she would be his wife. And that's exactly what happened. So now we're going to see that this lawyer, by the name of Tertullius, is going to bring three charges against Paul. Let's look at what it says here. Verse 4. But to detain, you have no further. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Here is the first charge. He has stirred up riots. Look with me at verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. The first charge against him is that when Paul came into Jerusalem, he stirred up a riot. Now, we would see in chapter 21, verses 17 through 18, that Paul was just merely going into the temple. And there were some men from Asia, we think Ephesus, that came to him and offers up some false charges. And that false charge led to a riot. But they are putting this on Paul. One Bible preacher that I appreciated from a long time ago named Vance Havner said, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival he brought this gospel message and some received it and some rejected it here's the second charge against paul he is a leader of an obscure jesus sect look with me at the second part here of verse 5 it says and is a ringleader of the sect of the nazarenes this jesus is the one that paul is following this Paul is of a, of a cult. He's not even mainstream. He follows this Nazarene whose name is Jesus. This is the only place in the New Testament where we have Christians referred to as Nazarenes. This is the third charge that we see here. We see this in verse 6. And that is, Paul, he tried to profane the temple. Look with me at verse 6. It says, "...he even tried to profane the temple." But we seized him. By examining him yourselves, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. So so they are saying, this lawyer is saying, Judge, you realize that we value our temple. And he came in disrespecting it. We had no choice but to apprehend him and to arrest him. Here are the three charges. Then in verse 9, we see that the Jews, the members of the Sanhedrin, also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So while they had a hired gun, this Tertullius, this lawyer, we can assume that there was an amen corner where all these men for the Sanhedrin were in the back saying, "Mm mm-hmm, all right, Mm mm-hmm, that's a good point, Mm mm-hmm. And they were supporting the lawyer's argument, his allegations against Paul. So those are the three charges against Paul. Now let us consider Paul's defense. Verse 10 says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. And so you can see the authority that is offered to the judge. The judge looks at him and just nods. And now Paul will begin to speak. He says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He's not offering words of flattery. He's just saying, "'Judge, you are an experienced one, "'and I am grateful to stand before you today. "'So let me give you a line of defense "'that will address each one of these charges against me.'" Verse 11. "'You can verify that it is not more than 12 days "'since I went up in Jerusalem, "'and they did not find me disputing with anyone "'or stirring up a crowd.'" either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. His first line of defense is to say, I have not sparked riots. I came here, I came to Jerusalem 12 days ago. Do the math, judge. It took me one day from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and according to verse 1 here of chapter 24, I've been waiting in jail for five days, so that's six days that are accounted for. There's no way in the world in the first six days I could have stirred up such a riot that I'm being accused of today. Let me offer a second thing here. Verse 13 says, Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Verse 14 says, But this I confess to you. So at this moment, Paul is offering a confession. If you are like me and you love those old uh, movies that take place in a court trial. At this moment in those old black and whites from the 40s and 50s, there's the press. They got this large camera with this massive flash and someone's dashing out the court doors and they're going to the payphone and saying, hey, we've got a confession. Put it on the front page and full black black letters. Paul confesses. Well what does he confess? Look at what says here in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they called a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that they will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. What What is he confessing? He is confessing that he worships the God of the fathers. As he looks around at these Jews, the members of the Supreme Court, he says, I worship the God that they worship. I believe the scriptures. It says here, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I believe what the scriptures say. He is confessing to the judge. I believe that this world was created by God. God spoke it into being. I believe in the flood. I believe in Moses. I believe that he parted the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments was given to him. I even believe Jonah the prophet who was swallowed by a great fish. And I not only believe these historic events, but I believe in the main message of the Scriptures that one was to come and one would save us from our sins. This is what I believe. I confess that. He says, I do confess that I'm a follower of Jesus, for he fulfills Judaism. I even believe more than what these people believe. And he says, I walk with a clear conscience. Do you know what a clear conscience is? The word conscience is with and knowledge. As, as things, the word of God is being revealed to me, I agree with it. On Friday morning, our family was gathered for a devotion. And as we're sitting in the living room and the sun is coming up from the east and piercing through the window, because of that bright light, every smudge, every dirt is exposed on that window, not only from our five-year-old but also from our cat, right? They are all there for us to see. And it is there where we have to make a decision. What will we do with all this dirt? What will we do with all this smudge? We have to address it. And so we clean the windows in preparation for a family gathering yesterday. It's the same way. As we read the scriptures and as God's Spirit directs the truth of that scripture to our conscience, we have to deal with it. And that's what Paul is saying. I have addressed it with a clear conscience. Now let me get to the third defense. Because they've also accused me of profaning the temple. So let me address that. We see it here in verses 17 and 18. Now after... Several years I came to bring alms to the nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Now, listen, Judge, I've been off for a while, I've been a part of what's called the way. This is this Christian movement that the founder of it, Jesus himself, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one come to the Father but through him, and I am a part of that, proclaiming the way throughout all the known world. And as I was doing that, we took up an offering. We wanted to bring it back to Jerusalem as kind of a stimulus package here for the famine of which they are experiencing here in Jerusalem. And while we did that, I I met with a few other men. They took what was called a Nazarite vow to be separated from God or separated to God. And we we went back down to the temple and I was going to purchase their offerings. And it was there where these these lies were shared with me. You see, I didn't come to profane the temple. I, I came to honor the temple. I have honored the temple by bringing offerings. And while I'm with you, Judge... There's one other thing I'd like to say to you. Let's look here, what it says here in the last part of verse 18. It says here, but some Jews from Asia, they ought not to be here, they ought to be here before you and to make accusation should they have anything against me. What Paul is saying is, Judge, you and I both know that according to our Roman law, if a charge is being brought before someone accused in the, in the trial, Witnesses must be present, and there are no witnesses here today. You and I both know that the only decision you have is to throw this case out. But before you do that, I want to tell you what this is really all about. Look at what it says here in verse twenty. Or let let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. This is what this is all about, Judge. I want to tell you why I am here today. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. This has nothing about me and discrediting the temple. This has nothing to do with me than, than speaking against the Old Testament scriptures or about the Jewish people. This is because I proclaim that Jesus has been raised from the dead. and That's why I'm standing here today. And church family, what's taking place here is that Paul is moving from the defensive to the offensive and he is beginning to proclaim the gospel to this judge. So what became of this? Let's look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysis the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Now, Lysis is the chief of police from Jerusalem that sent them to Caesarea. Verse 23 Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. And that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Paul was not being sent to Alcatraz here. But rather, there would be Roman soldiers that would do six-hour shifts, and they would be strapped up or chained to him. But people could come and visit. People could meet his needs. People could bring food to him. So there you have your trial. Oh, wait. There is another trial that's about ready to take place. Look at me at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Jerusalem, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, at the beginning of this message, I told you about the judge, the governor, Felix, how he had this drop dead, gorgeous wife named Jerusalem, who he connived in, in getting to divorce a man so that he could have her. Now, this Jerusalem woman had some royal blood in her veins. She had a great-grandfather who was named King Herod, who was responsible for killing a whole bunch of children in Matthew 2 to stop out a threat against Jesus when he was born. She had a great-uncle who was responsible for killing John the Baptist. She even had a dad that was responsible for killing the apostle James in Acts chapter 12. And it says here that she was a Jew. And she would have been acquainted with Jesus and who he was. Her family had tried to kill the whole movement. And probably one day after coming home from work from her husband, Felix said, I had a hard day today. This guy named Paul is preaching about this Jesus being raised from the dead. You know, I've heard about him. I've heard about him my whole life. I'd like to hear what he has to say. So you have Jerusalem and Felix, and it says they sat down with Paul. And you notice how they summarized it there? They heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. That's a great summary of what we call the gospel. A few days ago, uh, uh, Ginger, our, our administrative assistant, said, hey, we got a voicemail, we got an email. Someone has called outside the state. They used to attend Highland Crest, and now they have someone that's in the ICU of a local hospital, and they're wondering if you would go up and share the gospel with them. Well, just on Monday, I was praying, God, would you allow me to share the gospel with someone this week? And so when that email came across, I thought, well, here is an answer to that prayer. So I go up to the ICU, and here is a woman with oxygen over her her face, and I introduced myself, and she is of sound mind. And I just, I made small talk, and I asked, I said, God forbid something were to happen to you and you were to die. Do you know where you would spend eternity? And she said, I have no idea. I said, well, if you were to stand before God, and God said, why should I let you in? How would you answer that? She said, well, I've, I've lived a good life. I, I am a good person. I said, well, can I talk to you a minute about that? Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Have you ever lied? Oh, yeah. Have you ever stolen? Oh, yeah. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Oh, yeah, I've done all of that. Well, where do you think guilty people go when they die? Heaven or hell? Oh, I'd be going to hell. I said, Do you, do you know what Jesus has done for you? He has taken your judgment upon yourself, he, He's taken it upon Himself so that by faith, you could have his righteousness, and you could go to heaven. It's by faith in Christ. I said, Imagine you were in an airplane and you were thrown out of the airplane, and the only thing that would save you from death would be you clinging to a parachute. Well, Jesus is that parachute. You need to cling to him, and he can save you from eternal death. And so we see here in our passage that there is a new trial, verse 25, where God is the judge, and he's going to judge Judge Felix. Look with me at verse 25. And as Paul, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So there are three charges that are going to be brought against the judge. The first charge is that Felix lacks righteousness. I don't know about you, but the scripture says that all of us lack righteousness. Romans 3 verse 10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. In, in Genesis chapter 18, there's this wonderful little story of Abram, or Abraham, having a heart for this town called Sodom. And, and he says to the holy God, God, if there were 50 righteous people in this city, would you not bring judgment? And, and wrath on this city? And God says, oh yeah, if there were 50, I, I would not do it. And so he looks, he says, well, how about 45? If there were 45 righteous people in Sodom, would you refrain from bringing judgment? Yeah, I wouldn't bring judgment if there were 45. Well, how about if there were 20? If there were 20 righteous people in the city, would you destroy it? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't destroy it for 20. How about 10? If there were 10 righteous people, Would you withhold your judgment? I I would withhold my judgment. Yes. The problem was for Sodom. There was not one righteous person there. And you know what, loved ones? There's not one righteous person in Green Bay either. Or in De Pere or in Pulaski or wherever else. The Bible says there is none righteous. If our righteousness were like a paper-pencil test of a hundred questions, and we stood before the the righteous teacher, God himself, he would demand perfection. We would have to have all hundred of them correct. But there is not one person here that would. You might get four right. I might get three right. Someone over here might get 20 right. But all of us would not be able to live up to that standard, except for one. And that is Jesus. He has come and he has gotten all of those right. You know what he offers? He offers his test to you. Where you lack righteousness, he says, Chad can have mine. Moses, he can have mine. Lance, he can have my test. And when the great teacher judges, when the great teacher examines our test, he sees Jesus' righteousness not yours. Romans 3 verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, we are not made righteous by trying to obey God's commands. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all Who believe. So, the first charge that Paul is bringing against this judge is he lacks righteousness. But God provides righteousness through Jesus. We must by faith receive it. The second charge that Paul brings against Felix is that you are without self control. Felix, as we consider your story, you stole your wife, you lack self control. Anything you want, you just take. And when you receive the righteousness of Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit as well. And He will work His fruits in your life like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, this gospel message will not only help you with your past, that you can have the righteousness of Christ, it will also help you with your presence, that you will have the character of Christ in your life. It can also lead you to helping you in your future. Because for Felix and for you and I, judgment awaits. And you see it there, the last part of verse 25, and the coming judgment. This is the third charge that God has against the judge. There is a coming judgment against him. Acts 17, Verse 30 and 31 says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world. And so this is, what, this is what Paul is saying to the judge. Listen, judge, Jesus can either be your Savior or he can be your judge. What will it be? Now, what was his response it says here, the last part of verse 25, Felix was alarmed. Felix was frightened. Now think of this. Here's this judge, the governor of this province. He's the one with all the authority. And he is trembling as there's this man who is in shackles and chains. And he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Here's Felix's response. I will wait for a time that is more convenient. It's not that I'm opposed to what you are saying to me today, preacher. But right now is not the right time for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, this Paul would say, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The writer of Proverbs says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. If you've been in church at all, I imagine you can identify with my experience. There have been times where I've been in a Bible study or in a Sunday morning sermon, and someone is preaching, and it's that the Spirit of God is taking the word of God, and He is convicting my heart. And it is very uncomfortable. And I'm like, when is this service going to get over so I can escape this conviction? We need to respond when that conviction comes over us. Because we can walk out of the room and that, that conviction may leave and, and it may not come back. This week I read of Harry Ironside, who was a pastor in Chicago. When he was 12 years old, he was in this massive theater in downtown Chicago where the great evangelist D.L. Moody was preaching. Ironside looked out and he thought he saw around 10,000 people. And in the middle of that message, D.L. Moody said, I want all of you who profess to be Christians to stand up right where you are at. And about 6,000 people stood up. And he says, all of you who became Christians at age 15 or less, I want you to sit down. And about half of them sat down. So there's about 3,000. And then he said, all of you who are, became a Christian between ages 15 and 20, you sit down. And another half of them sat down. There's about 1,500 people. And then he went, how many of you became Christians between ages 30 to 20? 40 to 30? 50 to 40? And by the time he got over age 50, this little 12-year-old boy looked out at the Sea of people, and saw about twenty different people standing. And here's the point. As you are hearing the gospel, respond. Today is the day of salvation. Dr. Clarence McCartney told a story. It's not it's not in the Bible, but it's a story about a meeting in hell. Satan called four leading demons together and commanded them to think about a new lie that would trap more souls. I have it, one demon said. I'll go to earth and tell the people there is no God. Well, That'll never work, Satan said. People can look around them and see that there is a God. I'll go and tell them there's no heaven, suggested a second demon. But Satan rejected that idea. Everyone knows there's a life after death and they want to go to heaven. Well, let's tell them there's no hell, a third demon said. No, conscience tells them their sins will be judged, said the devil. We need a better lie than that. Quietly, the fourth demon spoke. I think I've solved our problem. He said, I'll go to earth and tell everybody there is no hurry. You see, the best time to trust Jesus is now. Are you waiting for your life to straighten out? If you're sensing the conviction of God on you today, I would encourage you to agree with him and to give your life to Christ. How did it play out here for Felix in Jerusalem? There is no record in the Bible or in history that they trusted Christ. Look at what it says here as we close out this passage. Verse 25. Rather, 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You see, in these two verses, there are two different reasons why Paul, or rather, why Felix would not trust Christ. One was for money. He had hoped that if he just kept him in prison long enough, then Paul would try to bribe him. The second reason was he was trying to do the Jews a favor. This was a career decision. To trust Christ might put his career in a decline. And so money and his career were more important than trusting Christ. Is that what's going to keep you from trusting Christ? Today is a day of salvation. As Ms. Vanna comes and plays, I want to give you some time just to contemplate this message today. What is keeping you from trusting Christ? It's not that you need to get baptized. It's not that you need to become a member of this church. It's not that you need to try to clean up your life. Bring your life before God today and say, I don't have a righteousness of my own. When I look at the test, i failed miserably. But if Jesus will provide His righteousness in my place, I will take it. It is my only hope. And I repent. I will not live the way that I have been living. God, if you will help me, if you will give me your spirit, I will obey. As you lead, show me where you want me to obey. Father, I pray for you to take these words, take a passage like this, where there was a man, a woman, that says, it's not that I disagree with the message, it's just that the timing is not right for my life. History tells us that Drusilla and her son were overtaken by a volcano and and were burned alive and then went into eternity. God, help us to sense the urgency of the day ourselves. And you hear what the Bible says. Today, today is the day of salvation. If that is you this morning, and you say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to renounce my sinful ways. I want him to change who I am. You could pray something like this. Father, I have sinned. I've broken the law. I've broken the Ten Commandments. I don't have righteousness in my life. But I understand that Jesus has come to offer me His righteousness. And I receive that gift by faith. And I want to turn from the sinful stuff, the rebellion, the disobedience of my life. And if you will... Enable me from this day forward, I will obey you. If you give me your spirit and empower me to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you have prayed that and you've been born again, God is going to radically change you. He has radically changed you already. Here's what our fruit looks like. You're going to have a desire to read the Bible, a desire to be around other Christians a desire to proclaim to others what Jesus has done to you as well. You're going to have a desire to pray. Say, God, what is it you want of my life? If you've trusted Christ today, I would encourage you to let someone know immediately. In fact, as we stand here for the song of invitation, you may come down and say, Chad, I did that today. Today I'm now a follower of Jesus. I'll be right here. I'd be happy to greet you. If there's another way that I can serve you, bless you, if there's a way I can pray for you, I'd be happy to do that as well. Let's stand together and let's sing. I've decided to follow Jesus.